Hallelujah. Well done. You even beat the first service. Yours was a little heartier. Good morning. If you're a guest with us today, we are so glad that you are here. Welcome to Rockwall Prez and welcome to Mission Sunday. Today we're pausing in our current sermon series and we're turning our attention to global missions. And we're focusing on how this church has been invited into the great mission of God. And we have a story to tell. Today I want to tell you that story. Eleven years ago, our church was set up on a blind date. We were much smaller back then. We had just finally paid off this church building. We were out of debt, which opened up new opportunities for how we could use our resources. And finally, we got rid of the purple and green carpet that covered this sanctuary as we rid ourselves of the terrible decisions of the early 90s. Now, we were looking to the future. And we wanted a future where missions was at the core of who we are as a church. We started to think, what would it look like if we began to sacrificially invest ourselves in a people and a place? Not just for a moment so that we can have a Christmas pageant service. What would that look like over years and decades and generations? And we began to pray that God would reveal his glory among us. And really, all we had was that desire, but we didn't have a destination. Where might God lead us? Children's Relief International, located here in Rockwall, was actually founded by two of our members, Alan and Melody Parat. And they came to us and they said, uh, we just had met them, and they said, we think we know the place. We'd like to introduce you to a couple of our projects. We would like you to meet India. So the blind date was set. They took us to India, and it was a match. And here we are. Over a decade later, and over $550,000 has been raised from both inside and outside this church, and Rockwell Press has never taken a dime of that money. 77 people in this church have gone. 12 water wells have been dug. Seven churches have been built. A children's home has been purchased, and Rockwall Press and our members Regular attenders account for 80% of the support of the children in the Rajah Children's Home. God has moved. And those numbers tell a story that God has done extraordinary things. He has revealed His glory among us. So, I do not state those numbers as though the work is done, the work is just beginning. I really do believe with all my heart that all of that is really just the preface to the story that God wants to tell here at RPC. Because if all of that doesn't make us ask God for more, then have we really seen and understood what he has done? And so as we look to the future, we will continue to ask that God would reveal his glory among us and that he would continue to transform and shape us into a people that say we exist for the glory of Christ 
in the life of the world. And there's a part of us that when we think about wanting God to move in our lives, it's always on our terms. All right, God, I want you to fix this. I want you to do that. I want you to focus your attention here. I want freedom in this area. It's always us setting the terms, but mission is that invitation from God to step into what he is doing in this world. And it's not just us going out into the world to change the world. It's mission that God uses to change us. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and these things will be added to you. So if you feel like something is missing or you want more, today is a big invitation to you. Because for us to be a people of mission, we have to understand how central the mission of God is to what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a church. It's not a subcategory of church activity. It's everything. And we should also recognize how we live at a time and place where, unfortunately, the Great Commission has taken a back seat. And I don't mean a back seat like in an SUV. We're talking like school bus back seat. It's way back there. In 2018, Barna did a study nationally that found that only 17% of churchgoers could actually identify the Great Commission. 17%. If the company you worked for did a survey and only 17% of the people knew what you were even supposed to be doing, what do you think would happen? If the Great Commission is what God is about, then that should make us really ask, what are we about? It's dangerous to find yourself on a different page than God. And to be honest, that statistic shouldn't surprise us because we live in a culture in which the Great Commission has been transformed into the Great Suggestion. Because we've simplified it, we've watered it down, we've diluted it into just simply being about evangelism. And so then we base our participation in it based on our own personal sense of whether or not we're gifted in that area. Or we think of the Great Commission is that's for people that feel a passion to move overseas and quote-unquote have a heart for the nations. And do you see what happens? All we've done is we've just made the Great Commission about whether or not we feel called. And we don't think of it as something that we have been commanded. And the mission of God is far bigger and far more encompassing than what we think of it. It's far bigger and far more encompassing than our own sense of purpose and calling and gifting. The mission of God is represented in the Great Commission, and it's what God is doing. Because mission constantly focuses our attention on the simple fact that God is doing something in this world. He's put all of his cards on the table. He's revealed his purpose for the ages and all creation. He's revealed his kingdom that cannot be shaken. His king that cannot be overcome. And through that king, Jesus Christ, God is reconciling this world to himself. He's restoring a fractured creation. He's making all things new. And he has enthroned his king above the cosmos.
And before him every knee will bow and every tribe, tongue, and nation will confess that he is Lord. That's what God is doing. Mission isn't just something that the world needs. It's also something that we need. Because mission is what protects us from making the church about us. And this buy it now, have it your way, serve me, drive through culture that influences us to place ourselves at the very center and to make the church orbit around our desires and our preferences and our priorities. Mission is what reminds us that we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the life of the world, and true life is found in understanding that that is the life that we are called to. That we are called to exist for the life of the world, a world that lives in darkness and deception, filled with lies that dehumanize and destroy. What's easy is to point a finger at it. What's hard is to have the passion to love it. Mission is what emphasizes your own story. It reminds you that you were once in the bullseye of God's grace, that you once walked in darkness, and you were bound in chains to Satan, sin, and death. You are here today because someone went on mission for you. Mission is what humbles us before a world that we would otherwise be inclined and want to hate. Because it doesn't let you forget that the most evil pagan that you may despise still requires the same grace that you yourself required. Mission is what strengthens our faith because it's where we see God move. And we shouldn't be surprised when he does because God moves when God's people devote themselves to God's mission and that increases our imagination for what God might do and it gives us the boldness to ask him for it. And we at Rockwall Press, we've seen God do extraordinary things among us. It's a good time to ask him to do more. And I want to tell a part of that story today. But I really want to do it in the context of something that we've never really done before. So we want to express how we view missions here at RPC. We talk about it all the time. I know you probably get tired of me talking about it, but we talk about it all the time. Missions is central to who we are, and so how do we view missions here at RPC? Because when Christ says to us and to his people to go, go into all the world, what are we really being invited into? What are we really being invited into, and how does that change us along the way and not just the world? At Rockwall Prez, we believe that at its most fundamental and foundational level, missions is an invitation to share in God's heart for the world. Missions is an invitation to share in God's heart for the world. And we will never understand the mission of God apart from the heart of God. So what does sharing in his heart for the world actually look like? Well, it means three things. One, Sharing in God's heart for the world means that we share in his love. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For God so loved the world. For God so loved this world. 
the same world that we look around at and we think it's falling apart. It's a broken mess. We point fingers and we think it's all just going to hell in a handbasket. This same world that's so easy to write off and to reject, God looked upon it in love. Because John 3.16 tells us that our God is a missionary God. In love, he came to us. He came for us. The foreigners, the ones who were far off, the ones who were lost and living in darkness, he entered our suffering. He carried our sorrows and our pain, and he bore our burdens. He came to us in love, and our missionary God creates a missionary people. That's why Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So what does that tell us about missions? should at least tell us that God's disposition towards this world is not like ours. God's heart towards this world is not like ours. And if missions is an invitation to share in God's heart for the world, then something within us needs to change. It's not just the world, it's we who need to change with it to join God in his heart for this world. And you know, and you may say, you know, I really do not feel that way about the world right now. And I say, of course not. But that's exactly the point. That's why Jesus sends you on mission. It's to change you too. And what might he do when he does? In 2013, Tim Long, who's an elder in this church, was sitting in a bus all by himself in the middle of the deep forest of India. It was his first trip, and when he told me that he wanted to go that year, I said, why? Why why do you want to go? And he said, you know, I, I don't really know. I just have a deep curiosity that God might do something. I just have a deep curiosity about what God might do in me. So that's all I got. So Tim was sitting in that bus because he was nervous. We just pulled up to the first church we were visiting, and out in front when we drive up is the entire church lining the walkway leading up to the entrance of the church, singing and clapping and singing praises to, the, to God, waiting to receive us. And so whenever everyone got off the bus, Tim was nervous. He felt out of place. It was all very uncomfortable for him. So he was trying to find something to do. So he started fidgeting with his camera. And he was hiding. Hoping that everyone would just go in and then he could sneak in behind him and go completely unnoticed. But Tim remembered what he had been told to do. To get out of the bus. To walk up to every single person grab every single hand, and just look them in the eye. That's it. Touch the untouchable and just let Jesus do the rest. And so he got out of the bus. And I'd already made my way through the church, giving high fives. It was fun. And when I turned around, I thought Tim was behind me, but he wasn't. I looked out the door, and Tim had just barely gotten started at the front of the line. 
slowly grabbing every single hand and looking in every, in every single eye. But the thing is, he waited. These are untouchables. They're slum dogs. They're scum in their world. They live their life being told to look down, not up. They don't look people in the eye. So Tim came along and he grabbed their hand and he held their hands until they finally looked up at him and looked him in the eye. And as he walked into the church, I looked at him and he was just weeping. And I don't mean like a little tear in the eye. I mean weeping. It's very rare that you can see a man's life changed on his face. And that was it. And later that night, I asked him what happened in that moment and what those tears were about. He said, I can't explain it. He said, when I was going through the line and looking at their faces, it literally felt as though my heart doubled in size within me. And it was filled with a love for these people. And I can't explain it. The only way I can describe it, he said, is that it's the same way that I felt whenever I held my first child when they were born and I held them for the first time. My friends, missions isn't just a task that Jesus gives to us. It's how he transforms us. It's how he makes us into something new entirely and gives you something that you don't have now. And we think about missions based on what we have to give and what we have to offer. Wrong question. It's what might Christ give to you in that mission. It's why he says, I am that child. I am that widow. I am that poor person. As often as you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. You will meet me as you go out. And when you meet me, you will find freedom, you will find love, and you will find joy. Because secondly, sharing in God's heart for this world means that we share in his joy. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. In love, God gave this world what was most precious to him. He offered this world the source of his greatest joy and delight he offered Jesus. And in mission, we are invited to do the same. Whether it's in India or your next door neighbor, it's to share in God's joy of offering what is most precious to him. But that just leads to a question. When was the last time you really felt the joy of Christ? When was the last time he felt so precious to you? When was the last time you felt the joy of Christ? Because if you're a Christian long enough, we all know that we can get stuck in spiritual ruts. Where it just feels spiritually, there's just a void and an emptiness that can last for days or decades. And our faith can feel lifeless to where we just look around at everything and we just think, you know, is this it? There's something more, man. Our faith no longer feels alive. It doesn't feel vibrant. It feels mundane and rote. And in the end, Jesus just simply becomes familiar. And we lose that life-changing sense of how precious he really is. 
And that was certainly true of me. My first trip to India was in 2012. I didn't go because I wanted to go. I went because I was asked. I expected nothing from it. And yet it changed my life. Really, like in ways I can't even, I couldn't even express to you. And part of that story was when we stopped at Pastor Raju's church way out in the bush. We had a worship service among these vibrant believers. It was loud and passionate. And after the worship service, Pastor Raju came up to us, but he only speaks Telugu. So we started talking to Isaiah and Ananth. And then Ananth turned to us after the conversation was over, and he said, this woman that he brought up to us, she's ready to be baptized, and we would like you all to do it. Wow. What a gift. But you need to know that in the deep forest, nobody has a problem with you believing in Jesus. Like Nobody really cares. You can just add him to the pantheon of gods that are on your shelf. But when you are baptized... That's something different. When you are baptized, you are saying to the world around you, I am a Christian now, and I only worship Jesus Christ. I forsake all other gods because Jesus is my God, and there is no other. That's what baptism really means. And so we got into the bus, and we drove out further into the jungle, and we came to the pond where they get their water, where they bathe their livestock, where their livestock get a drink and they do their laundry. And it's also where they perform baptisms. And so we waded out into the water and a nun asked me, or asked us, he said, what do you want to name her? Like, what do you, like, name who? <laughs> like, and he said, well, she said, or he, he goes, we, uh, it's customary that in the deep forest, whoever baptizes them gives them a new name. Because they will be a new person, and they will be living a new life. All right, so no pressure or anything. Better come up with a good one. And she had told us that she wanted to be married. She was young. She wanted God to give her a husband, so we named her Ruth. And when she was baptized and she came out of the water, everyone spontaneously just started singing worship songs and praising God and lifting their hands and clapping their hands and celebrating, banging the tambourine. And I remember standing there just simply watching Ruth. I couldn't take my eyes off her. She's standing there in the water just with these tears of joy streaming down her face, mixing with the waters of her baptism. It was a moment, and we got back into the bus on a high, like, man, this is incredible. <laughs> this is wonderful, and so we asked the nun to tell us more about Ruth and her story, and then the nun said that Ruth actually comes from a village that still practices cannibalism, and that she was actually the first convert in her village. And then he said that news of Ruth's baptism would spread like wildfire in the deep forest. And whenever her village found out, they would kick her out of her village. They would kick her out of the community. They would kick her out of her home because she would be kicked out and shunned by her family. And she had just put herself in a position 
where there was a massive dent in any possibility of her ever getting married. She was living a new life indeed. And it was sobering to realize that we had just effectively participated in the event that by worldly standards would otherwise ruin Ruth's life. Now here's the thing. We hear that. And the problem is that we feel sorry for Ruth while she's crying tears of joy. What's wrong with us? Have we lost sight of who Jesus is? We can't help but look at all that Ruth lost, but all she could see was what she gained. Jesus Christ. And I couldn't stop thinking about Ruth. God used her in an incredible way because I kept thinking about knowing all that she would face. All of the suffering that she knew that she was going to be experiencing. The fact that her life would be turned upside down, knowing all that was coming for her, yet seeing on her face those tears of joy because of how precious Christ was to her. For Ruth, Christ was enough. Christ was better. Christ was more. And all I could think of was, I want that. And I don't have it. I want that kind of joy. I want to know Jesus like that. I want to know how precious he is in the midst of all the things I'm afraid of, all the things I fear, all the things I'm anxious about, I'm worried about, and I feel like might be coming my way. To know the comfort that she saw, or that I saw on her face. That is a joy I have never tasted. And it's a joy I wanted. And by seeing her, I also saw how I'd lost sight of who Jesus really is. Because that day we watched as Paul's words played out right in front of us. But whatever gain I had, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Ruth's life and her joy was a living expression of the very song that we just sang. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone, hope is sure, Christ is mine forevermore. So what did I learn that day? I learned that missions is not just about introducing the world to Jesus. It's also how Jesus reintroduces himself to us. It's where we are reawakened to the joy and power and beauty of knowing Christ and the surpassing worth of having him. It's a mission that we are reintroduced of the beauty to the beauty of the very thing that we're called to offer to the world. And lastly, sharing in God's heart for the world means that we also share in God's hatred. It's in missions that we are invited to share in God's hatred of systems of injustice and oppression. If you remember back in our series that we're currently in, we talked about Babel and how Babel teaches us something really important about sin and how it operates. It's that sin institutionalizes itself. Evil institutionalizes itself into systems of rebellion and corruption and perversion. Sin organizes and unifies humanity under false religions, false ideologies, and false worldviews where the truth is traded away for lies. 
And sin builds cultures and kingdoms that create these power structures that produce oppression and injustice. All based on the lies of the value of human life, the purpose of life, the purpose of our existence, and what it means to be human. And it ultimately produces injustice and oppression. And God hates injustice. Because God's kingdom is a kingdom of justice and equity and peace. His kingdom is established in righteousness and in truth. His kingdom frees. It does not enslave. His kingdom protects the vulnerable. It doesn't exploit them. God hates sin. Therefore, God hates injustice. And therefore, so should we. And in the Great Commission, Christ sends us out into a world that's filled with it. And you may be surprised to learn that when people go to India for the first time, you know what their first response is? It's typically anger. That may be surprising to you. But imagine how much it surprises them. Because they go and they expect to just feel this excitement and this passion. There's this anticipation leading up to this moment. And then boom, anger. Because whenever they get there, they look around and they see those this world that they didn't know, they see suffering they don't understand, and they see problems that they cannot solve. And the scale of it is unbelievable. And sometimes it can be so powerful and overwhelming when that anger sinks in and makes them just want to shut down because those feelings are confusing and they feel so out of place. But we always tell them, no, they are not. The real tragedy would be for you to come here, look at all of this, and feel absolutely nothing. That would be a tragedy. That anger you feel is because God is sharing his heart with you. He's letting you feel what he feels. He's sharing his heart for the world with you. Because in Isaiah 6, it's a famous passage that's often used in a missions context where Isaiah is brought up into the heavenly places, into the throne room of God, and he sees the utter brilliance and glory and holiness of God sitting on his throne. And he hears God cry out across the heavens and ask his great question, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord. Send me. And so often we just look at Isaiah's heart in this story and we say, see, Isaiah is a great example because he was willing to go. But God's heart in this story gets completely overlooked because why is he asking this question in the first place? Why does he ask who will go for us? We have to see this question in Isaiah 6 in light of everything that came before it. It tells us from the very beginning in Isaiah 1 that opens up the whole book by saying that Israel had become a people that was just like the world, filled with corruption and lies and lust for power. They trampled the poor. They piled up injustice. They applauded at oppression. They overlooked wrongdoing. They forgot about the fatherless. They took advantage of the widow. And so... When we read God's question, who will go for us? He's asking, 
who will share in my righteous anger? Another way of reading that question is, does anyone care? Does anyone care about the injustice and the oppression that they see? Does anyone care about the downtrodden and the despised? Does anyone care about my purposes? Does anyone have my heart towards this world? Who will go for us? God is looking for a people to share in his righteous anger about his good world destroyed by sin and the lives that have been crushed by the injustice and oppression that it produces. God hates injustice, and he sends us into a world that's filled with it. Because God has allowed this church to have a place on the front lines of his kingdom advancing in this world. And he has taken us to places untouched and uninfluenced by any sort of values of the kingdom. To places where sin has been institutionalized for millennia in ways that have brought such incredible suffering and sorrow and injustice and oppression. He's brought us to the rock quarry of Rajamundri, where slaves, yes, slaves, bust rock by hand, day in and day out, their entire lives, with no advocate, never thinking that someone might be coming for me. Who will go for us? He's brought us to the Kali Ghat and the massive brothel system that surrounds it, that swallows up young girls and throws them into that system at 12 and 13 years old and tells them that the only reason that they exist is so that they could be visited by a man who wants to come and connect with the divine. Who will go for us? He's brought us to the deep forest where the untouchables have fled to escape persecution because they live inside of a caste system that says they're less than human and have no rights. But they only go out to that deep forest to live in extreme poverty, working in the rice fields where their children have to work alongside them because they couldn't afford to feed them if they didn't. Who will go for us? And every year we go, we raise funds as a church. We set big goals so that we might push back against the power of sin and injustice in the place that God has pointed and the place that God has said, go. And we proclaim the gospel in word and deed. We dig water wells. We build churches. We provide food and resources. We try to provide education and opportunity to come alongside gospel ministry. And why do we do those things? It's because those things pronounce and give evidence that a different kind of kingdom is breaking into this world. A different kind of system has entered into this world that's driven by a completely different kind of values. It's a kingdom of life and love and wholeness. It's a kingdom that breaks change. It does not bind them. It is a kingdom that's overcoming all kingdoms of this world and will one day end every cycle of poverty and injustice. Those are things that announce that someone has come for you. And they ultimately give expression and evidence of our king that we as his body 
can be used to announce his presence in this world. The very king who answered the great, the great question of Isaiah 6 himself, who will go for us? And Christ steps off his throne and said, Here am I, Father, send me. And he came to overcome the power of sin by healing the blind and the sick and the lame. And he announced that a new kind of power had entered this world that brings renewal and restoration. And he pronounced judgment on the corrupt and on the oppressor. Because in him, God was reconciling this world to himself and is making all things new. And so might we go for Christ because Christ came for us. This fall, our fundraising goal is $51,000. $51,000. That may seem like a lot. It is not. When this church was half the size, twice that came in from ways and places that I never would have imagined. $51,000 is the goal this year. And that $51,000 will dig two water wells. It will build two churches. And it will provide five green door homes for five of the pastors in the deep forest. I just want to address the fact that from our perspective, those can seem like nice and reasonable things to do. And we miss the significance. So I want to put all that we've talked about together by looking at those things from their perspective. And see it from their eyes. Because imagine that you lived in the deep forest with your family. Every day, you get up early at dawn because you have a long walk ahead of you and you want to beat the heat. Because your job is to get water for your family. And that's your one job. And you have to do it every single day. And it's your only job because it takes all day because you have to walk seven kilometers just to get to the nearest water source. And then you have to carry it seven kilometers back. You get up and you start walking. And on your way out of the village, your village, you actually pass a water well right there. But you can't use it because it belongs to the rich man in the village. In fact, you can't even touch it because you're an untouchable. Because you live inside of a system that has told you from the day that you were born that you are less than human because of the family that you were born into. Which means you're unclean and contaminated. And anything you touch becomes unclean and contaminated. And you know that you would be killed if you touched that rich man's water well. Because you've seen so many people killed for far less And why would that rich man help you anyways? Because that same system you live inside of says that you're an untouchable in this life because you messed up in a previous life. So why would he help you when you're just getting what you deserve? Why would he help you and get in the way of justice? So you pass by that water well every day. You walk seven kilometers to your water seven kilometers back, and then you do it again tomorrow, and then you do it again the next day, and the day after that, 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 and that's your life. And then one day a poor man shows up, 
and you hear him preaching and speaking about some God named Jesus as you make your way out of the village and you've never heard of Jesus, but there are many gods in this religion and there are many crazy men that preach them. But then a month later, that crazy man shows up with a construction crew as you're leaving that morning. And when you return, you learn that they dug a water well and you think it must be another one for the rich man. But the next morning on your way out, there's that crazy man right there by that water well again And this time, he stops you. And he says, come. Come. And draw water from the well. And you say, no. I'm not touching that rich man's water well. But the crazy man says, no. This water well does not belong to him. This water well belongs to Jesus Christ. And it belongs to you because he is the one true God and he gives it to you and to this entire village. It's free for all who want to come and drink. But he will also give you a living water so that you will never thirst again. Jesus is the God who came for you. And so you draw water as you think about how all of your gods have never given you anything and your life has changed forever. Those water wells are simply the most powerful evangelistic tool I've ever witnessed. They're the first things that the pastors provide when they start preaching in a village once that village stops beating him out of town. And every morning as the village wakes up, And comes to get the water from that well. That pastor is there because he got up before dawn so that he could be at that village, at that water well, and preach about the living water of Jesus Christ. And the people come from villages all around the region because this water well is closer and it's free. And they hear the gospel and they believe. These pastors in the deep forest average two and a half baptisms a day. That's two and a half baptisms, two and a half half lives destroyed by the joy of Christ. And as the people of the village begin to believe in Jesus, the church is built right next to it. The church becomes a literal refuge in the storms from their monsoons and floods that destroy their huts. It stores resources for the community and becomes a place that relieves their burdens. It fills the air every Sunday with worship and praise to Jesus. And with every single one of those churches built, do you know how they perceive it? With every single one of those churches built, it announces to everyone in the region and in the deep forest that Jesus Christ has come to town. And he has laid claim to the deep forest. He is laying claim one village at a time so that every knee may bow and every tongue may confess. And we want to build those green door homes for those pastors that just live in those thatched roof huts with dirt floors. These homes will have a concrete floor, brick walls, and a metal roof 
CRI is wanting to expand their Green Door project into the deep forest, and they want to start with these pastors. Why? Because they so often get overlooked. They're the least funded of all the ministries in the deep forest. And yet those water wells are dug and those churches are built and the children are selected to enter into the Rajah children's home because of their ministry. And God has seen fit to have the church in the deep forest built on their broken bones and bloodied faces. Because every one of those wells and churches that gets built means that one of them bled for it. And yet, every time I go, they do it with joy. They face that suffering and that sorrow because they know the joy of Christ. And they can say, Christ is mine forevermore. So who will go for us? Might we say, here we are, Lord. Send us for the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray.